Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Should I say action instead of go? I don't know what you say in radio. Nobody's doing action. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So tonight is kind of a special episode, because this is going to be our 50th episode. Um, at least in terms of recording. <laughs> I hope it will also be the 50th that we air. Quite possibly, um, yeah. Yeah. I think it will be. I think we got out of sync a little bit, because we sometimes record special episodes. Holidays, but yes. Yes, holidays. But, so, to uh, celebrate, we're going to talk about a very special book, which is Beowulf. Yay! (laughs) Um, Yes, this is obviously sort of the, you know, for now, the conclusion to our England Before 1066 um, series, which had two previous episodes on the history which is, say, like, kings and queens and battles and such, um, mm-hmm. of England before 1066. And now we're going to talk about what most people know about England before 1066, which is the literature. Um, to be we- fair, it's it's a lot more fun than uh, Ethelred the Unready. Or, yes. Well, know. I mean, yes, depending on Sorry. <laughs> how you feel about Sorry. Ethelred. <laughs> Poor Ethelred. Mr. Red, yes. but... Um, so, yeah, of course, the funny thing, I mean, the reason why we did those two, of course, is because, um, there's such a tendency to talk about the literature without talking about the actual content, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's this sort of weird problem because there is also the issue of not really knowing exactly when a lot of these things were written and not just not exactly, but like, you know, centuries, like they're sort of like, it's not like written in this century. It's like mm-hmm. written in these centuries. <laughs> Across these centuries. You have kind of a range. Yes. And even then, like, you might know close to when it was put down, but not necessarily if that was when it was composed. Yes. Well, that I should specify. Absolutely. Right. So we do tend to know when things were copied. Um, it's much more obvious when things were copied. But we have copies, first of all. So I guess that's the first thing. Old English literature, like most literature, obviously, from pre-modern history, um, and even a lot of early modern history, and even a lot of actual modern history, right? Um, You don't have the originals, you have copies. Mm -hmm. Right? So Shakespeare, of course, we don't have any of his original scripts, right? We have just copies that were published. So similarly, right? We have things that scribes copied. So you know when a copy was made, but there's no way of knowing, yeah, when. And, you know, um, there are some other interesting things. So we should point out, um, we've talked before, actually, about sort of libraries and scriptoria and things like this. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, scribes frequently are in monasteries or convents. Um, So they do tend to be religious figures because that is who is doing this. That is who has the time and the inclination, of course, the tools, right, to be writing all this stuff. Um, But there is also this sort of um, really interesting issue of scribes copying things. Um, 
we frequently think today, if you copy something, you're trying to be exact. And that's sort of true, sure. But um, scribes were often also, let's say, editors, <laughs> sometimes even kind of translators, right? Um, so we're going to use Beowulf as the big example for this. Um, the manuscript we have is known as Cotton Vitellius. Um, you'll remember we talked about Cotton, oh. who was the dude, Robert Cotton. And he organized his collection by busts of Roman emperors yes. or something? Yes. <laughs> yes. So this was the bookshelf with the bust of Vitellius. And it was on the top shelf, apparently, or shelf A. I'm assuming that was the top shelf. Um, and it was the 15th manuscript on that shelf. So it's Cotton Vitellius A15. <laughs> um, okay. These are no longer organized that way, but they are. this is still how they are known. All right, so that's Beowulf. Um, specifically, there were actually two manuscripts, two different manuscripts that Cotton had bound together. So Cotton Vitellius A15 is actually two different codices. Right. So he, oh, really? he had two old codices and he got them bound together into one because, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. I mean, it's a reminder that collectors for a long time, this is like the 1700s, right? So collectors um, were frequently also sort of curators and editors and all these other things, too, just like scribes were. And that's historically true. So, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it it stops being true today, where you try to take things as you find them, and sometimes disassemble things, right? If people seem to have, you know, in modern times, like in the 16 or 1700s, put several things together that are all, like, from the 1300s or the 1100s or whatever, but clearly didn't originally go together, you might disassemble them. Mm -hmm. Although, if somebody originally assembled, it can depend. If in the 1100s somebody assembled together a bunch of manuscripts from, like, the 800s, but since the 1100s, they've been traveling around as one manuscript and people have treated them, then you might leave them together because they have such a history. Right. Even though when they were written, right, because they, yes, they had this history. They didn't actually go together. We can all acknowledge that. But they have had such a long history of being together, yeah. you might leave them together. Yeah, the new guy is now also part of the history. Yes. Because 1100s yes. was significantly long ago. Right. So, so there is this interesting question, though, right? So manuscripts are, they're never pristine, I guess is the point. And I don't mean like <laughs> dirty fingerprints. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that they have a really interesting history, right? And that can make a huge difference to how we read them. So Cotton Vitellius is actually two manuscripts. The Noel Codex is the second one. And that's the mm -hmm. one that has Beowulf. And it's got a lot of other stuff too. Okay. Um, so it's got Beowulf and some other stuff as well. And the scribe, there's like, you know, you can tell scribes by handwriting. So we don't know names, but it's like scribe A and B because of the handwriting. Um, okay. And, you know, they're obviously the scribes because they're just copying it out. And there are other things in the manuscript that they also copied out, like the Judith, an old English poem about Judith, um, who kills Holofernes in the Bible. She's a uh -huh. huge medieval yeah. heroine. Um and she's actually, she's a great heroine, but um, she's a kind of really interesting figure. But she, you can see, I mean, it's interesting, right? Um, that someone would copy Judith with Beowulf, right? Mm -hmm. um, there, there is an interesting uh, female heroine who kind of 
is similar in some ways, although biblical, to this male hero who is, of course, pagan, right? But the scribe is clearly a scribe. So we do know that the scribe isn't the author. All right. Um, so that being said, we'll get back sort of to Judith and some of these other things sec, but I want to finish the, so it's the scribe <laughs> copying it out. Um, the other thing that scribes can do in addition to just like collecting, we don't know if it's the scribe or if somebody else was like, Oh, let's put all these texts together into this one manuscript. Right. Um, so just collating things like that. So the fact that, you know, Beowulf and Judith might end up in the same manuscript is sort of interesting. Yeah. Um, but then there are other interesting things. So, for example, the scribe is probably a religious person, just in the sense that the scribe is probably a monk, possibly not. But um, the author is also clearly Christian, because there are references to God, like Christian references to God. But mm-hmm. Beowulf is pagan. So mm. this is about a pagan hero, not a Christian hero. Um, and there isn't... Okay, so <laughs> now we're starting to get into the weeds, we might say. So, <laughs> how do we put this? Basically, the dating of Beowulf runs into a number of very interesting issues. And this is true for mm-hmm. a lot of Middle English, that Middle English, uh, Old English texts. A lot of Old English texts have this problem. Um, but... Beowulf is a little bit unique because Beowulf is actually unique, right? So mm-hmm. it is the only long-form heroic poem in Old English that we've got. Oh, the only one? Yeah. Okay. It's the only extant long-form heroic poem in Old English that we've got. Okay. So that makes it unique. <laughs> um, okay. Right? And so if you think about it, most cultures... In the West, you kind of think of them by their heroes, right? So, obviously, like, the Iliad and mm-hmm. the Odyssey for the Greeks, and the Aeneid for the Romans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then, if you move West, basically, if you move towards, you know, um, you have the sagas, right? You have the Norse sagas. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have that type of literature in Old English, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, because they're Germanic. We're talking about... These are Germanic. We talked a lot about the previous two episodes, right? While England was yeah. Celtic originally, right? We get the Germanic peoples, the Angles, the Saxons, Jutes, moving in from northern Europe, sort of northern, what is today, Germany and France, moving into England. Um, they don't... I mean, we don't have it, at least, but they don't seem to have brought with them these types of sagas. We don't have the sagas of the king who came to England and conquered it or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't really have heroes. We don't have these names. Right. Um, so obviously the, the name everyone knows for England is Arthur. Right. But Arthur is not old English. <laughs> um, he's not is he French. Well, sort of, I figured we're going to have a whole episode <laughs> on Arthur. Okay. Um, he's sort of supposed to be Celtic, but he sort of isn't. Um, okay. But yes, he is put together from a variety of sources. He's sort of supposed to be Celtic, right? He's sort of supposed to be kind of hanging out in Wales. But um, 
he is largely put together also from sort of French sources. There obviously is a lot of French in the thing, right? Romances and, but also mm-hmm. a lot, those tend to be, those are later, right? This is England. Mm-hmm. Arthur is really sort of England post 1066. <laughs> um, so pre 1066 and old English, we don't have, we don't really have this except for Beowulf, right? Beowulf mm-hmm. is this exception. So Beowulf is the old English hero. Okay. Okay. So, um, that being said, there can be a skepticism from scholars who are sort of like, well, he's the only one we've got. It, it's not something that seems to exist in the old English literature, really, that we have. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that scholars have asked themselves, we are not going to go with this, but this is the first question, well, that we're going to sort of talk about quick and then dismiss it. <laughs> um, was Beowulf actually created in Old English? Ah, or so could, it could have been, you know, someone else wrote it and then it got translated. Yes. And so that question is, did he actually, was he imported from Norse, right, from something else, Germanic, mm-hmm. imported to England, written down in Old English, and that's just the only one we have? We're going to say no on that. But okay. there's some really interesting sort of questions that people have raised. This idea that because it's unique... How do we know it's English, basically? Like, what makes him English? Um, Mm -hmm. And this is a good question, because, of course, the English are Germanic. We're talking about the English who are Germanic, not Celtic. So this is not a story that's sort of indigenous um, to the British Isles before the Germanic peoples show up. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that he... He obviously comes with them in some sense... He's very Germanic. I mean, it is Germanic. But that doesn't mean he isn't created there by the Germanic peoples who have been living in England. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, of course, this is kind of like the great American novel, right? Where the novel, of course, isn't specifically American. And right. neither is the English language. And neither are a lot of things, right? But we nonetheless have a sense of what we mean when we say the American novel, that there is a sort of cultural distinction to that. That right. is kind of unique. As compared to <laughs> the, like, Russian novels yes. or French novels or, yeah. 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 Or even English. Japanese like, novels. British. Yeah. yeah. Japanese, of course. Yeah. So, um, so that's kind of the sense, right? That Beowulf is English. Okay. But what does that really mean who created him Mm -hmm. so that brings us to sort of our next problem which is that he is clearly created by an author who is christian so that christianity has got to england um but it is clearly about a hero who isn't and that that's okay and that for for a while scholars sort of thought that that's another thing why people thought maybe it wasn't actually english or um because the idea that maybe it was imported Mm-hmm. Or some people just thought maybe it was very, very early, right? It was so early. Um, but it, that doesn't quite fit with the Christianity aspect. But the idea is that it was sort of pre-Christian. Um, and then it's just that we have a version that was later written down by Christian scribes, essentially, who sort of added God in. But that does uh-huh. not seem to be correct. Oh, okay. The references to God aren't just sort of interpolated. They're pretty clearly there. And they are part of the poem in ways that References to God are part of other poems as well in Old English. Um, so, for example, like 
a lot of them, the laments, we'll sort of talk about the laments, like the seafarer, the wanderer. Um, a lot of these poems eventually reference God, even though they clearly have a kind of pagan outlook, mm-hmm. this Germanic outlook, but at some point there will be a sort of reference to God that's clearly a Christian reference. Right. So this is maybe indicative of society that's transitioning or something. Maybe. I mean, it's more arguably. That is something that people have also said, yes. Um, mm-hmm. Arguably, though, it's also kind of a picture of a society that is reconciling um, different outlooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the poem, the old English poem that is known as the Dream of the Rude, meaning the cross. So the it's, it's a poem that is from the point of view of the cross <laughs> upon which Jesus was crucified. Okay. And um, it, it gives us the poem. Old English really enjoyed um, objects speaking. The object point of view. Object-oriented <laughs> ontology. I was going to say, like, <laughs> yes. everything, everybody else in that story has their own little sub-story. Yes. So why not the cross? Yes. It's like everybody in the bar in Mos Eisley has their own little yes. <laughs> story. Exactly. Yes. But yeah, so The Dream of the Rude is, yeah, it's a dream vision poem, which is very Old English and makes it all the way through into Middle English as well, like Piers Plowman. Um, but a dream vision, right? So it's essentially, it's a type of poem where you, you frequently don't quite know, is it a dream or is it a vision, right? But you are seeing something sort mm-hmm. of real, you're giving a kind of message, right? That's sort of real. And so this is a dream vision poem of the cross who tells the dreamer slash visionary um, its story. <laughs> um, and the story of the cross, of course, is how the cross was a faithful, um, you could say servant, but really um, more like, you know, Beowulf and his men. Right, a sort of faithful um, right hand, faithful soldier <laughs> to Christ, um, and did what it what it had to do. And this sense, it could have at any time, um, like broken or you know freed Christ, but it was not supposed to do this. Right, it, uh-huh. it had to, you know, it it had its job and it had to do it. Okay, so it, did. it had to stand there and have a person nailed to it. Yes, and it did its job. Yes. Um, but it also, it's this really interesting poem because it is very much, right, Christ needs to be seen um, from the sort of Germanic worldview, right, as the sort of conquering hero, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is tough when the whole point of that story is the sort of love, a love that is so deep you sacrifice yourself without fighting back. I mean, the right. not fighting back is very key <laughs> Yes, in that story. That feels, yeah, I feel like the, um, again, I maybe I have some preconceptions about Vikings and Danes during this period, but not fighting back doesn't seem to be high on their list of stuff. Right. Um, it, is, it is not supposed to be high on their list of stuff. Um, it is deeply embedded in what you are supposed to do, is fight back. Right. Um, I mean, we just talked about, obviously, um, you know, England before 1066 and all of the fighting. And then, of course, right, the, the Dane law and the first time, for example, that Dane geld is paid, right, that you actually pay, mm-hmm. you know, protection money, essentially, right, that you're paying them not to invade or not to 
conquer any more lands. Yes. Um, and that is seen as a, yeah, it's a sort of weak move. Obviously, right? But you're acknowledging that they yeah. will beat the pants off you. But really, you know, you're <laughs> kind of supposed to take it. I mean, there, there was controversy about do you pay it to maintain the peace? Is peace really what you want to maintain? Right. Like, yes. I mean, a lot of worldviews would say yes. Christianity, theoretically, I mean, obviously it has not always worked this way. We're not saying that it has. But, you know, ideally, this is sort of the point of most of what Jesus said, <laughs> right? Blessed are the peacemakers, um, not the cheesemakers. We should reference. Blessed are the pie makers. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, Monty Python. Um, but yes. yes. So um, this sort of sense, right? Turn the other cheek, famously. Um, so yeah, there is obviously, right, the, the lessons that are built in that are supposed to be, right, that are sort of really <laughs> uh, at the core of what Jesus says. It is about peace, it is about love, it is about self-sacrifice. Um, and none of those things... What a hippie. Yes. <laughs> none of those things... Godspell, right? None of those things are particularly on the radar, except maybe kind of self-sacrifice, but only in the sense that if you go into a battle, you know you're going to lose, but you fight your heart out and kill as many people as you can before you get killed. We could... But that's not definitely mm -hmm. the self-sacrifice that Jesus is talking about right obviously so yeah okay <clears throat> so <laughs> the dream of the root has this really interesting job of sort of depicting christ as this conquering hero while also emphasizing that he is conquering through love and peace and not fighting back so it does what what christianity did at first um Later, as you move into sort of the High Middle Ages, I think we've talked about this, um, you get the, the Man of Sorrows. It really mm -hmm. becomes about the suffering. The whole point is the suffering, right? And that he suffered so that you basically don't have to, right? But before that, um, so that's the suffering Christ, patience, right? That's where passion comes from. But before that, um, there is this sense of uh, Christ as a triumphant, triumphans, so um, conquering. Right, as a sort of conquering hero. And he is kind of seen, even later, as a knight, potentially. Um, and so at this point, right, early Middle Ages, Old English, we are, he is in the sense a kind of Germanic hero, who is, of course, fighting the devil, right? It just okay. turns out that to fight the devil, who is, of course, the ultimate monster that you would fight, <laughs> right? Old English, you gotta have some good monsters, um, mm -hmm. and the devil's the ultimate monster. He comes in many great monster shapes, dragons, snakes, whatever, anyway. Um, so yeah, so he's fighting the devil and, um, it's just that it turns out to fight him. It does not include a sword, but there is, so there is this very interesting tension that is being reconciled in this poem, right? As the cross sort of tells us, <laughs> tells us about what happened, right? Okay. And, and how it remembers this. Um, so, um, this essentially, right, this sort of reconciling of these two worldviews that happen in this poem um, are essentially, they are a sort of thing that becomes really central to the way Old English poetry kind of saw um, Christianity, um, where there is this interesting 
contrast between sort of fighting and fighting and suffering um, and the idea of sort of just fate, <laughs> right? Um, and then the sense of, but God ultimately is sort of in charge and will take care of it. And really, um, you know, who knows what God really has in store for us. Eventually we'll all get to heaven and things will be better there. Um, okay. And obviously, you know, Germanic lore has plenty of sense of like heaven, things might be better there. But again, it's mm -hmm. a very different sense, right? Partying in Valhalla right. versus sort of eternal peace. Again, right? We get the sense of like right. peace. Um, you don't get to Valhalla by, you know, again, not fighting. Yes. And <laughs> if you were the type of person who didn't fight, you would probably not be super happy in Valhalla, is my sense. Right. Right. Well, you don't get to Valhalla unless you're a warrior. Like, if you're not a warrior, you go somewhere else. Yeah. Right. Um, right. But at the same time, what ends up happening, and so you see this in, in some of the other poems, like, like the seafarer, um, where there's this sort of sense that maybe after all this suffering on Earth, um, it's not so bad to have somewhere where you can just go and rest. <laughs> um, so like the end of The Wanderer, we'll talk more about the laments later, but the end of The Wanderer um, says, and I'm just quoting this, I just got this off of like the Rutgers um, Old English Poetry site. We can put up the thing online, but this is just their translation at the end. Um, Let's see, it will be well for those who seek the favor, the comfort from our Father in Heaven, where a battlement bulwarks us all. Hmm. Um, which is right there. It's a great, great example of how you're melding these two worldviews, right? The same way you're safe behind a bulwark, right? You don't have to fight because no one can get through it. So you can be warlike but peaceful at the same time. <laughs> hmm. um, heaven, right? In heaven, like God... You know, everyone's sort of bulwarked in heaven, right? Um, and so you can be comfortable and peaceful because no one can get through. But also, you don't, and you don't have to fight, right? No enemies can get through. Um, so it's this really interesting reconciliation of those ideas, right? Um, and so Beowulf has the same thing going on, uh, where you do okay. get where the references to God are are clearly Old English. Right, they're not interpolations. I mean, obviously they're old English because they're being written by, but they're clearly not interpolations. Right, this is a worldview that existed in old English mm -hmm. poetry and continues to exist in old English poetry <laughs> um, for basically as long as we have old English poetry. Like old English poetry, this is what you get. Um, also, so that's one thing, right? So it's not interpolated. Also, Grendel is compared to. Um, probably Cain, I think this is something, um, the scribes also made some changes. Um, I think the first scribe had written that Grendel was descended from Ham's cursed lineage. Ham being mm -hmm. a son of Noah, of course, who saw him naked. Um, and it was changed to Cain by the oh. next scribe. And Cain seems to be probably the appropriate one, because <laughs> then there's a reference to Abel. Um, so clearly, right, and that's again, that's something that it's a very interesting way of sort of explaining who Grendel is. Again, it's the people in the poem are pagan. I mean, obviously Grendel is, but Beowulf is pagan. They're all pagan. All the men are pagan. Um, but the poet comparing Grendel, right, saying that Grendel is part of Cain's lineage is a way of explaining how he exists in a Christian context, not necessarily a pagan context, right? A pagan context, they're just monsters. 
Right. Just monsters exist, right, for various reasons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But in this case, you're sort of explaining where Grendel comes from in a way that's interesting. Um, So Beowulf is clearly written by someone who is Christian, who has, like a lot of these poets, thought about how Christianity and Germanic culture meld, right? Um, So that is not that is not an interpolation, right? Um, So consequently, right, um, at the same time, there's not this sense, you know, there's no sense that Beowulf is being Christianized, which I think um, is something that might have happened much, much later, right? After 1066, where you'd be like, well, he can't be pagan. (laughs) You gotta, you gotta make him, no, no, this author clearly doesn't have that sense because you come from a Germanic people where you're, you know, your past is pagan. You're still close enough to it. Mm-hmm. You know your past is pagan. Your heroes of the past are pagan. That's just how it is. And you just hope that they're okay, you know? <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, So you aren't, but you know that they were. Um, so there's not an attempt to change them. Um, all right. So that's, so that's sort of on that. Um, one of the other interesting things that has happened <laughs> um, is that scribes could, depending on where they were, make things more in their own dialect. So Beowulf that okay. we have is mostly in West Saxon, which is the okay. dialect of Old English from Wessex, which we talked a lot about, right? Right. That's the big one. That's the one that's going to be England, basically. Everywhere. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's all one that doesn't exist anymore. Yes, because it kind of took over and then it just disappeared. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so Wessex, um, so it became England, basically, right? So they become the kings of England. Um but that's, and that's in the South, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's the dialect we have it in. But there are a lot of parts of it that aren't West Saxon dialect. And there's a bit of a question. Was it written in that dialect? Mm-hmm. Or um, is it possible that it was written in a different dialect, but the scribe or any number of scribes over time, as people were copying it, started copying it more into their dialect? Mm-hmm. So, who knows? And the problem is, in that case, it could have sort of been anywhere. It could have been written any in any dialect, and slowly over time and through copying, been transferred into other dialects. And we might just happen mm-hmm. to have the one that is mostly West Saxon. Um, hard to know because we only but, have one copy. Yes, right. <laughs> I know. I, and clearly, Another out of problem. all the copies that must have been made, right? There right. must have been more. Um. But, yes, so so what was its original dialect? Well, um, I mean, there aren't a ton of choices, <laughs> but the most obvious alternative is that it would have been in Anglian. Uh, I think we mentioned mm-hmm. East Anglia before. That is, of course, in the east. Yep. Um, and yep. so that would be kind of like uh, Northumbria um, or possibly Mercia, which was the west bordering Wales. Right. Okay. Um, so it, so that could have been its original dialect. Um, again, that doesn't necessarily help pinpoint it. Although people, you know, then people are saying, well, if it was in this dialect, what is the point at which it's most likely to have been written? Um, but okay. Um, one of the other things then is linguistic. They say, okay, if it's in this dialect or that dialect, when were certain words being used or not used? Um, the problem is again, that's just almost impossible to know. Right. You can never know when things were first used 
and archaic words can always be still used. Mm-hmm. So and so that just doesn't help. And there are other reasons why it clearly doesn't help. Um, there was a time when they were like, "Oh, well, these lines are metrical if you use this form." But then people were like, "Wait, but those lines are metrical if you use this other form." And so, anyway, mm-hmm. that doesn't really help either. So, <laughs> um, the final sort of problem here, or part of this, is um, Beowulf, who, by the way, um, his name means Bee Wolf, which probably means bear. This is everyone's assumption. Oh, interesting. Yeah, a bee wolf is a bear. Um, but anyway, right, a bee, a bee wolf is a bear. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, so Beowulf. Um, the final interesting part of this, he's he's a geet uh, from southern Sweden. And he helps mm-hmm. out the Danes, who of course are in Denmark. Um, and you might remember that the Danes spent some time invading England. There was the Dane law. We just talked about it again, right? Right. Dane. They, okay. uh, they kind of owned part of it. Yes. Um, so people are like, well, would this have been written before they invaded, while they were there, or after they left? And some people are like, well, you would never write about a hero who helps out the Danes after they'd invaded. But that's not necessarily true, because there are definitely parts of England where they were, you know, potentially sort of embraced and so on, you know. Um, mm-hmm. There are parts where they were always looked on as conquering, you know, and hateful, no doubt, but, like, there definitely were parts where they weren't. So that's, it's, that doesn't really tell you. Um, so, so again, right, that's another thing where people are like, is there a way to say, well, it for sure had to be before, or it for sure had to be after? Um, you know, can we prove that there are things in there that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't already invaded? And the answer is really no. There's just no way to know. Okay. Um, for a long time, people thought that it had to have been after they'd invaded because, and we talked about this a little bit in one of the previous episodes, um, because of Beowulf's burial at the end, that there is no way that this was mm-hmm. English, right? And then, of course, they found Sutton Hoo. Mm, and it turns right. out that that was English. That was definitely before, Sutton Hoo was definitely before the invasion and is very, very English. So still doesn't help. Consequently, <laughs> um, the manuscript of Beowulf, we can say, is around the year, like, a thousand, I think. Mm-hmm. It, it's written, like, two to three hundred years before that. <laughs> okay. Um, so Are there any events mentioned in the book that we could check against other sources? No, or anything? there are other sources that are used. Like, um... So at the mentions of Cain and Abel, there's a sort of famous Old English Bible. Um, mm-hmm. And you're like, well, you know, so the Bible was in Old English already because um, he, he, um, you know, who knows? We're going to go with he, I guess, for the, the author of this. But who's to say? Um, but anyway, the author probably used um, or certainly knew, you know, like Old English Genesis, for example, um, because there is some sort of lifting from other sources. Um, there's a source sort of about Finn, you know, who's this hero who's mentioned. Um, and that, that poem, you know, sort of lifted a little bit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, there might, you know, there might be things we no longer have that are lifted a little bit. Um, which is another reason why it's sort of obvious that this was composed 
by somebody who knows these other Old English texts, and therefore making it less likely that someone who's not Old English, you know, that this wasn't originally composed in Old English, right? Because then why would they be referencing these texts? They would reference other stuff. Um, so yeah, so I mean, there are definitely, but the thing is, like, we can't date any of those specifically either, for all the same reasons, basically. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah. So these are the problems. <laughs> um, yes. So anyway, so we have this sort of issue of it's from, you know, anywhere from the, like the 8th to 10th century. Okay. Um, we're assuming a little bit earlier. I mean, 7th or 8th century, probably. That'd be the six, you know, six or seven hundreds. Six hundreds would kind of put it with Sutton Who, maybe the seven hundreds, but could be the eight hundreds. <laughs> um, you know, could be ninth century. Um, could be even tenth century. I mean, it could have been a recent, a fairly recent poem when the scribe was copying it out. Um, it's it's just it's so hard to know. Mm-hmm. It's just so so impossible to know. Um, and that's yeah. I mean, that's the sort of. Um, one of the really interesting questions about why why it's sort of unique to begin with, like why is it unique? Why is there only Beowulf? <laughs> um, and then why um, do we have this only? I mean, only one copy. You know, it's it's not unusual to have only one copy of things, of course. Um, but and it's sort of luck, you know. But it then mm-hmm. could there be something else we just don't have, or could you know? It's so hard to know. And precisely another part because, of it, of yeah. something that was lost. Right. Um, you know, or another hero. I mean, something, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then finally, this sort of interesting sense of um, this Old English <laughs> poems frequently. I mean, there's Old English poems like the Battle of Malden, which is about a specific battle that we know about. Um, and so that right. definitely is about, I mean, <laughs> we know, <laughs> like... Yes, that's a real battle with real people. They're also of chronicles, right? So chronicles are real and talk about real people, like, because they're chronicles. Like, that's the whole point. They're recording dates. Right. But Old English, like, poetry tends to be incredibly vague mm-hmm. about everything. <laughs> like, incredibly vague. Just incredibly vague about all sorts of things. Sure. Um, to the point that you can sort of... Um, Let's see, the, probably the best example. So the wife's lament, which is, again, this, the laments are so phenomenal, right? In, Old English poetry is windswept on a sea or a heath, and you're alone, and you're not supposed to be alone because you're supposed to be with people in a hall, right? And everyone mm-hmm. drinking together and having, you know, uproarious times like in Valhalla, right? That's the, the light of the hall, you know, and you're alone because you've been banished or everyone has died or something. And it's comparable to me. I always think of it as, you know, I mean, it's totally different, but it's also not different. It's a little bit like being a ronin in medieval Japan. Oh, okay. Right? Where your lord has, something has happened. And now you're a samurai without a master, which is the worst thing. You, you can't, you can't be that. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that isn't the thing that's supposed to be. Um, and so Old English poetry, right, you've got all these laments. So the seafarer, um, the wanderer, the wife's lament, where you have these people who are alone, 
in a society where that is a thing that isn't supposed to happen. Because the whole point is all of the people who are supposed to surround you. And you're bereft, and it's the struggle of existence. And that's why at the end, in some ways, it's almost kind of a relief that there is there tends to be this sort of little Christian message at the end. Where it's like, but, you know, eventually I'll just be, you know, dead <laughs> and at peace with God, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, okay. But at least, like, you'll, you'll yeah. be in heaven, right? Because Right. That, because that's the other side of this, is that these people, they're not going to go to Valhalla, right? You're alone. You're not going to die in battle and go to Valhalla. So it's a good thing you're a Christian, basically, because <laughs> at least hopefully you can be, like, with God at the end, and your suffering will be over. Yeah. Right? But, so only this poetry, it's just this really incredible poetry. Um, and there's a reason, obviously, I mean... It makes sense that it's so popular in some ways today. Like, the laments you frequently have to read in high school and stuff. And it, that makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense, because they're really, like, angsty. That's not even fair. <laughs> I mean, they're just, but they're really sort of depressed. Mm -hmm. I mean, these, but these people aren't necessarily depressed. They're just like, this is how it is. I'm alone. Right. Um, but then anyway, the point was, like, how vague everything is. So the wife's lament, <laughs> um, it's pretty clearly, it's a woman who has been sort of banished Okay, but it's so vague that some people have argued that it's actually a young um, noble or whoever who has been, like, thrown out by his lord. Oh. You know, so he was, like, a bad soldier or something. Who knows? And he's been thrown out by his lord and, you know, turned into kind of the old English equivalent of a ronin. Now, that's, you know, no. I mean, this is a woman, and it's kind of sexist to be like, it can't possibly be a woman. So it's definitely a, it's a woman, right? Um, but... But even acknowledging that, that it's definitely a woman, there's a little bit more of a question. Is she talking about one guy or two? <laughs> so the wife's lament, pretty clearly there's like her husband. But the way it's told, it's a little unclear if there's just one guy who she's been separated from because of his family and stuff like this. Or if maybe there's the husband, but then maybe also a lover. So <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, it's a little unclear, right? And these are the sorts of things that people write many, many articles and books about. Because... Um, it's just very vague. Uh, and Old English poetry kind of tends to revel in its vagueness in this way. Right? So, um, <laughs> this is why, uh, once again, right, it, uh, except if you have something like the Battle of Malden or the Dream of the Root, right, where you know exactly what they're about. Great. And again, like, of course, Battle of Malden was probably written close enough to the battle that, you know, they clearly know what they're talking about. But who knows? Um, but yeah, they, they don't tend to be internal markers that give you a lot of information. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So that there is not like internal dating um, in that sense. Yeah. Um, so these are the problems. Um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, but there are, like I said, there are internal references to sort of other literature, right? Um, so you can hear like... Um, Sigmund is mentioned in Beowulf. And he is, of course, a famous Germanic hero. Right? Um, so you do get references to other literature, but that doesn't help you any, because that's been around. Right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, um, anyway. <laughs> so this is all the problems with sort of dating Beowulf. But, um, alright, we have talked briefly, we've talked some other stuff. So like I said, the laments, yeah, the wife's lament, the seafarer, the wanderer, um, just these incredible laments. Those are all in the Exeter book, uh, which has some just incredible stuff. Um, hmm. And we're going to talk about the riddles at the very end. 
Um, but this Beowulf, right, um, in addition to everything else, um, it does have some of this in it. I mean, the laments, right, this is part of this culture, this is part of this context. So, um, okay. you, you do get these sort of tucked away. Um, but it is, of course, a hero's story. At the same time, you you always know that in the end, everything is going to end up terrible. Like, in the end, everything is going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this really interesting thing um, that is a little bit different from the way we probably think of uh, certainly, like, Norse mythology or even German, like, German, Old Germanic mythology, characters like Sigmund, um, that where we, the hero, and I, I mean, a lot of this is modern interpretation as well, right? So you have people like Wagner writing the ring cycle, um, where, you know, the whole point is kind of the Ubermensch, which is right. not something that the original sagas were thinking about. <laughs> um, but you know, they do have these great heroes, um, but the point, certainly for Old English, is that, and even if you do look at some of those, when the hero dies, everything will fall apart. And there's a huge problem with a society that depends on a hero, because when the hero dies, everything's going to fall apart. Right. Right? What is Earth going to do when Superman has to leave? Yes. Basically. Exactly. So the lament, of course there's this lament, Right. Um, because you know in the end the hero will die and everything will fall apart. So it's much more like kind of the Iliad in this sense. Although, of course, the, I mean, <laughs> the Iliad, even the Iliad, mm-hmm. which, spoiler, ends with the um, death, of course, of Hector. Um, tragic, tragic, horrible. And we know foretells the, the fall of Troy. At the same time, of course, the Iliad is really being written about the Greeks. I mean, it's being written about the Trojans, but it's really being written about the Greeks. Achilles is our hero. We know he'll die, but we don't see him die at the end. And even when he does, we know the Greeks will ultimately win. Oh, so, um, yeah. But, you know, it's it's from the side of, of the Trojans, right? Hector dies and everything falls apart. Um, that's, that's what you get, right? So, Old English poetry. So, um, Beowulf is brilliant because, again, right? And you can see in some ways, I mean, to me, Christianity melds pretty well with this mindset, actually, because Christ dying actually saves everything. So it's the one time, mm-hmm. like, your hero is going to die. He's always going to die. But in this case, like, then everything actually works out because he dies. Yes. Which is kind of perfect, because generally speaking, for Old English poetry, when the hero dies, everything falls apart again. So, um, so Beowulf comes in. Um, basically three sections. Uh, this is a little bit, you know, but this is how people generally break it down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, which is to say there's the opening that takes us through Grendel. Then there's Grendel's mother. And then of course there's the end, the dragon. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's sort of a little unfair, but right. It sort of opens with, um, the Danes are partying in their hall and there is this outsider and it's this great description because again right the lament it's this really Grendel is the one on the outside he's the one alone 
right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this great sense, actually. It really makes me think always of, obviously, I had read Frankenstein. I'd read Frankenstein before I read Beowulf in Old English for the first time. Probably before I read Beowulf at all for the first time. Because uh, I read Frankenstein pretty young. Um, and it reminds me very much of Frankenstein's monster, right? Wanting to join, like, the family in the cabin, right? Wanting to join people and not being mm-hmm. able to, right? Learning that he can't join people. <laughs> um, Grendel does not have this issue. Grendel's very much like, I mean, there's a parallel here. Mary Shelley knew her stuff. Anyway. Um, but Grendel, of course, right, he sees this hall. Everyone having great time. He is shut out in the cold. Um, and he, you know, takes it out on them. He goes and eats. I mean, he starts eating people, which is not, we don't condone that, obviously. <laughs> but we do kind of see his point. <laughs> Not kosher. Definitely not kosher. But, right, his point, he's been shut out. He's he's the wanderer, he's outside. Again, we're sort of told, right, he's descended because the lineage of Cain, right, the mark of Cain, you you walk alone. Mm -hmm. So he is from a descendant, I mean, he's from a lineage that is, like, um, always cursed to be alone. Which, again, in the society is the worst thing you can be, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, is he a monster? Is he sort of made a monster? All the same sort of Frankenstein's monster questions. But anyway, um, so he sees this great, so he's going in and eating them. He does this for like 12 years, right? <laughs> and Beowulf, finally, who's been grown up, of course, he's a geet, so he's been grown up elsewhere, decides, you know, he's not king, right? Um, so he, he's, but he's a tremendous hero. He has to go prove himself somewhere because some other dude is king. Um, right. And so he, travels what's not a long distance, of course, I want to point out, if you look at a map, from southern Sweden to Denmark, he, like, hops across the ocean. Uh, But no, he and his men get on their ship, they plow the waves, um, the whale road. Um, Mm -hmm. And... That's a great little metaphor. Yes, yeah. uh, Yeah, the kennings, which are the Old English, where you put things together, right? German does this, of course. You just smash words together Mm -hmm. to get a new word. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and Old English loved it. Um, modern English does it not so much, sadly. Um, but, yeah, Old English does some brilliant ones. Modern German, totally. Like, my favorite from the last year was uh, Schnutpulli. Yes. Which meant uh, mask. Yes. But it's, like, literally nose sweater. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, it's the sort of, you know... And English, I mean, we come up with, ah, train. We come up with so many new words in English as well, but we don't do it the way the Germans do it. And when we do smush Mm -hmm. words together, we make fun of it. You know, like Brexit or whatever. (laughs) Right? Like, we sort of make fun of that. Brangelina. Yes. Yeah. Even though, obviously, like, English is a language made to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But we do, of course, we invent words all the time, which is why dictionaries are always like, this is the new word of the year. And people are like, oh, that's not a word. But it is now, because we've been using it, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. so there you are. But yes, we do look down on it in a weird way. I don't know why. I mean, we're a Germanic language. We should... Anyway. Um, but yes, yeah, so they... Bring sh- back Whale Road is what we're saying. Yes, bring back Whale Road. That's a oh, So good. But yes, yeah, so they show up, obviously. Beowulf is like, I'm going to do this. Everyone's like, oh, we know you're a superhero. They don't actually say that, because superheroes are very American. But <laughs> we know that you are super into hero. We totally believe you, except, like, one guy's like, 
blah, blah. I heard that you're not all that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, because there's always going to be that one guy who's like, I heard that you're not all that. But anyway, so Beowulf is waiting for it. Grendel comes in as usual, not suspecting anything, right? Um, they've had a party, you know, everyone, so all, everyone's asleep now. A lot of people have left. Beowulf and his men are still in the hall. Um, one guy gets eaten. <laughs> and then Grendel kind of like, you know, sees movement or something, tries to grab Beowulf. Beowulf gets him, of course. You know, it's one of those where, like, you reach out your arm and then somebody grabs you by the wrist, basically. Um, Beowulf does not let go. Beowulf ultimately tears Grendel's arm off. There's a great, there's a very long description of this, you know. Um, and Grendel horrified, having realized that this was, you know, he'd been doing this for so many years and kind of gotten complacent, and now he was probably going to be going to hell. Um, he goes running out the door, you know, bleeding out all the way home. Uh, they all celebrate, they put the arm up, the next night they have a huge feast. And um, afterwards, everyone's like drunk and asleep, <laughs> and who should show up, right? Uh, and we know she's coming, because we are told, right, that someone is coming to avenge Grendel. Um, and that she is his mother, and so on. Um, and she is, interestingly, kind of parallel to Beowulf in a lot of ways. So people tend to think of Beowulf and Grendel as kind of the um, foils, but really it's Grendel's mm -hmm. mom, right? Um, she's old. She's been in charge of her kingdom, such as it is, for who knows how long. She has, like, oodles of treasure <laughs> at the bottom of her lake. Um, and she's clearly kind of... Um, in the same way that, you know, Hector's death by Achilles, Achilles' nose foreshadows his own death. Um, her story clearly kind of foreshadows in some ways, obviously just in some ways, um, Beowulf's own story. Hmm. Um, so she shows up. She, and this is interesting because she, she comes in, she kills um, the king's, like, best friend, and heads out and takes the arm with her, of course, right? Trophy of her son. I mean, she takes it with her. All right. Sure. And so everyone finds out what happened. They're horrified, horrified. They're like, Bill, if you got to do something about this. And they're like, she actually, despite the fact that Grendel had been eating people for 12 years, the killing of her son means that she, Grendel's mom, is in fact owed something. Right? Hmm. Um, that she's owed for that blood. Like a debt? Yes. Yeah. Um, because regardless of the fact that, yes, it was vengeance on him, she is owed for the taking of her son. And so there's a sort of recognition here <laughs> that she doesn't necessarily, you can't necessarily blame her. You're going to have to stop her. But you can't necessarily blame her for what she did. But now you go have to go take vengeance for the guy who died. Right. Um, but she sort mm. of deserved it. And so you have to go meet her as a you know champion. Um I mean, she'd earned it. Yeah. And so um, Beowulf goes after her. They all, of course, right, they just followed the trail that Grendel left when he bled out back home. Um, they get to the edge of the lake. Everyone else is like, you know what? I'm not going to go in. They kill a monster. Um, mm -hmm. They're like monsters around on the lake and stuff. But they're like, you know what? This is good. <laughs> we're we're going to stop here. Um, one of the guys, actually, who'd been talking shit before, Smack, um, he gives... Beowulf, a sword, a really good sword. Um, Beowulf's like, all right, I'll do this. So he dives for like a day. We're told this. For almost a day. He dives. That's how long it takes him to get down to the bottom of this lake. Wow. I keep okay. calling it a lake. I don't know. It's, it's a body of water. But anyway. <laughs> so it takes him, a, takes him a day to get down there. 
He finally gets down there. Um, there's Grendel's mom waiting for him. They fight. The sword won't penetrate her skin. So he thinks he's going to die. He sees suddenly her oodles of treasure and sees a sword in there. And he's like, aha. <laughs> he gets the sword. He manages to kill her with the sword. And then the sword melts. So he's only got like the handle and the hilt left. The sword itself like melted in her blood. I mean, I don't know. Is it acidic? We don't know. Anyway, it's symbolic that this sword was only made to kill her. Then it melts. It's not quite clear. But anyway, maybe it's acid blood. Maybe it's a magical sword that was only meant to kill her. Who knows? But anyhow. All right. So she um, she dies. Um, before the sword melts, he manages to uh, hack off Grendel's head to take home now. He finds Grendel dead, of course, there. So he's going to bring... He looks at all the treasure, but he can't carry it all back up to the surface. So he has to leave right. it. So he just takes like the hilt... You know, the rest of the sword, what's left, the hilt of the handle and the sword and Grendel's head back up. Meanwhile, the men up top have seen the, you know, blood boiling, sort of lake or whatever, boiling with blood. They assume that Beowulf has been munched. Um, and they're like, oh, sad, sad, sad. Um, but of course, he shows up pretty quick. And then they're like, oh, no, you actually survived. Great. All right. So then we get, you know, more partying and tales of how great Beowulf is. Um, and... This is the sort of, you know, one of these interesting moments where um, you have, you've had this throughout, but um, where the king of the Danes, right, has been called a good king. And clearly he is, but also he isn't because he can't protect his men, <laughs> right? Because right. he's old. He's old and he can't protect his men. And Beowulf is going to leave. And then what's going to happen? It's all going to fall apart. Right, mm -hmm. because who's going to protect them from their enemies when Beowulf leaves? The next, the next Grendel type, right? Or just whoever's going to invade, right? <laughs> from you know, mm -hmm. um, and so th that this reminder that has been peppered throughout already, and that again tonight, even with the feasting, and now they're safe, but also they're not safe because his task is done, as Beowulf is going to leave. This peppering sort of throughout of. This sense, right? This, as I said, this sort of the spirit of the old English lament, right? That in this case, it's not the all I'm all alone, etc., which is what Grendel had at the beginning. Um, in this case, it's the well, everything's great now, but it's about to be terrible, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all going to fall apart. We know it's all going to fall apart. It's all going to fall apart, right? Um, and so th that's this really interesting juxtaposition that is very much. Um, Germanic, but also again fits sort of right. It's sort of like as God wills it. It it really does fit in this sort of context, right? And you can't be sure of anything kind of until you get to heaven. Um, till Beowulf does leave, goes um, <laughs> 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 um It's okay. It was weird. Yeah. I know that's funny. Um, but anyway, so Beowulf <laughs> does leave. He goes back home to be a geet. Um, he does eventually become king. All this happens pretty quickly. Like, we sort of, you know... Eh. Anyway. 50, fast forward. Yeah, 50 years pass. He's been king for 50 years. And a dragon is suddenly, you know, attacking his people. Um, and he has to go fight the dragon. And so, I've always been, you know, 50 years. And he wasn't a he wasn't a kid when he showed up at, you know, to, mm -hmm. to fight Grendel and Grendel's mom. So, I mean, lowest... Like, he is at least 70. Okay. Right. And by my count, he's probably, I always figured he's at least 75. 
my personal thought. Okay. You know. Um, so he's he's lived a life, Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he goes off to fight the dragon alone. Because unlike with Grendel, where he had all these men who were willing to go with him, like, everyone's too scared, right? He's been this amazing king for so long. No one else is willing to go fight this dragon with him. But remember, no one else was willing to go fight Grendel's mom with him either. Right? Mm-hmm. So remember these parallels. Also, she's super old, right? Um, as he is now, going off to fight the dragon. Right. Um, the dragon, of course, also has oodles of treasure. All right, so there are all these interesting parallels uh, between sort of Grendel's mom and Beowulf, and the fight between Beowulf and Grendel's mom, and the fight between Beowulf and the dragon. So he goes off to fight the dragon alone, and one guy famously is like, all of you all are cowards, I'm going to go help our king. And he does. Oh, so one guy goes to help, and um, Beowulf slays the dragon with the help of the one guy who shows up. And um, as he's dying, you know, um, the guy who showed up to help brings out some of the treasure, you know, to like, we should, we should name him. So we laugh, spelled like wig, wig laugh, but we laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, so he shows up with the treasure and he like pours it out before Beowulf. He's like, look, this is, you know, what you got. <laughs> um, and Beowulf was like, well, you know, give me a burial with it. And, you know, if I'd had a kid who could have taken over, but I never had a kid. And so now I'm going to die and it's mm-hmm. all going to fall apart. I'm yep, sorry. Well. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, and there's this sense, well, like crumbs. maybe Wheeloff can help, but like, not really. He's not Beowulf. He's a good guy, obviously he's honorable, but he, you know, um, so again, right. This sort of lament. And so the, the end then it's this incredible ending to this poem. Cause this poem about a hero and you want him to have this amazing heroic poem, you know? I mean, even though we know Achilles is going to die, the Iliad ends with, him as the victor. I mean, Hector's the one who dies at the end. Right. Um, Odysseus does not die at the end of the Odyssey, even though no, we know he will die. Um, so again, <laughs> but Beowulf in Old English, no, no, no. Right? Um, he not only dies at the end, but the end is this basic lament for his people and what's going to happen now that he's died. Yeah. Um, and they do. They burn his body atop the pile of gold, which again, we now know you could have that much treasure in England because Sutton who was discovered and they had all that treasure. <laughs> um, like a dragon horde. And um, it's this sort of simultaneous, right? The great hero and all the amazing things he did. He gets, he gets the burial he deserves, but now everything will fall apart, right? It's this sort of lament for, for his people and for what will happen now that, now that he's gone. Yeah. So it's, it's clearly, you know, in as much as, Anything could be Old English. It's clearly Old English. It's part of Old English literature. But it's, you know, there's this sort of really interesting way in which it's a heroic poem, but it it also in some ways isn't. So we know it for the fight, like the monster fights, um, but it's really mm-hmm. about a lot more and about sort of what happens um, when you don't have that hero. Like, what does it mean you don't have that hero? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Grendel eats people for 12 years or what happens when the hero dies um, and that's really Old English poetry is very into that kind of thing mm-hmm. so um, yes um, we do however want to end on a sort of high note so I want to mention the Exeter riddles because while okay. Old English is super into laments it's also really really into riddles which is why Tolkien uses riddles um, and so the Exeter riddles are super famous um, and I do want to give a caveat that this riddle 
sounds like it's rated X. The answer is, and it is kind of, I'm going to say some swear words. <laughs> so if you don't want to hear it, fast forward, you know, like a 30 seconds or a minute. Um, yeah. All right. Are we, are okay. we ready here? So this is Real 25 from the Exeter Riddle Book. Again, you can find them all. There are lots and lots um, on the sort of Rutgers, um, you know, Old English Poetry page where we can find them all. All right. <laughs> so everyone has been warned. All right. So here's Riddle 25. Ahem. I am a wonderful thing, a pleasure to women, useful to the neighbors. I am harmless to the villagers except to my slayer alone. My shaft is lofty. I stand over the bed, shaggy below someplace or other. Sometimes a churl's daughter, proud-minded woman, quite sexy, dares to grapple me, molesting me by the redness, ravishing my head, affixing me in her fastness. She feels my fucking right away. She who approaches me, a woman with braided locks, her eye will be wet. What am I? <clears throat> An onion. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> yep. So that is a riddle. You see, right? Her eye will be wet, standing in the bed, fuzzy below, etc. Yes. Fuzzy below someplace or other. My shaft is yes. lofty. Yeah. Okay. So anyway. Um, yes. So that is an awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So that's that's an example. Um, there are a lot of, I mean. There so there's a, a whole ones. book of riddles. Yeah. Well, the Exeter book, from... which has. Um, we've actually mentioned, like, it has a lot of the stuff we've just mentioned in it, um, mm -hmm. but it has the laments, actually. It has the wife's lament, the wanderer, the seafarer, um, the ruin, uh, but also it has riddles, famously. I mean, the riddles are pretty famous. Okay. Um, yeah. And um, as I said, this is obviously sort of where um, Tolkien, I mean, this is why Tolkien puts them in, of course, <laughs> uh, The Hobbit. There's the famous sort of riddle section. But yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, and the, ex the um, you know, people have sort of come up with the answers for all of them. But um, let's see. Here's, here's another. This is a fun one. This is cute. Okay. I saw them treading the turves. Ten were there in all. Six brothers with their sisters among them, having a lively spirit. Their skin hung, obviously visible on the walls of their home. Every one of them. Nor was any of them worse off, their sides not more tender, though they must, deprived of their covers, awakened by the might of heaven's warden, break open with their mouths the dusky corns. Garments are reborn for those who emerged, abandoning their adornments, lying in their tracks, turning to tread the ground. Those are chickens! Okay. Wow. So what I'm thinking is just that Tolkien really simplified these. Yes. When he put them into The Hobbit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he kind of made I up mean, his own. Um, yeah. But yes. Um, yeah. So let's see. Here's a, another good one. Um, busy by turns, I must obey my servant. Zeal fettered with rings. Break open my bed, reveal brightly what band my lord gave me. Often sleep-weary, a man or a woman goes to greet me. Winter cold, I answer them back with fierce heart. Sometimes a warm limb bursts this bound bracelet. Though it is a, light, a delight to my servant, to that dizzy-witted man. To me, too, if someone admires me, how wordfully my message, its meaning, can be mouthed. That's a bell. Oh. <laughs> 
And okay. you think, you know, because you had to really, you had to ring the bell, right? This was a, we're talking about, a, you know, a real bell that you had to pull. <laughs> right. Right. Like a, like a church bell. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, cool. But yeah, so. <laughs> yep. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of animals. Um, but you'll notice, right, that they're speaking, right? So this thing of like object speaking. Mm-hmm. So like. Um, yeah, I was just thinking the bell, the bell telling the story. Yes. Or the onion. Yes. So like the, the dream of the rood, which of course is the serious poetic sort of version of this, uh, where, you know, the cross is telling the story. But there are a couple of riddles where the answer is the cross, actually. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, it's not, um, so it did exist in this version as well, but it also exists sort of as the poem. But yeah, so this idea of the sort of um, the perspective, right, of, of the object, right, uh, yeah, is, is also very important. I mean, uh, material culture is very important, obviously, also mm-hmm. um, in Old English. Yeah, if you think of the swords and everything. But yeah, so I figured we'd, we'd end with some of the fun riddles. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, yeah, these are like hardcore riddles. These aren't like... I don't know. Now I'm trying to think of some modern ones, but anyway, <laughs> uh, I guess what's black and white. And I red have all a modern over, riddle. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was gonna say the um, three men in a boat with four cigarettes, but no matches. How did they manage to smoke? Ooh. It was they threw one of the cigarettes out of the boat to make the boat a cigarette lighter. Ha ha ha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all credit to an episode of uh, Adam West Batman. Awesome. So, Classic. yeah. Clearly a, a straight line of tradition from the Exeter Riddle book yes. to the Riddler himself. Yes. Right? Oh, the, yes, the Riddler. Um, the new right. Batman's supposed to have the Riddler in it. So, yeah. We'll see. Yes. Um, Fun. Let's see. Let's end with one more. So this is yeah. relevant to everything we talked. So let's see. Um, have okay. Often I war with waves, battle the winds, strive against both at once, meaning to find the ground wave covered. Home is estranged from me. I am strong of struggle if stilled. If I fail, they are stronger than me, and tearing me immediately rout, wishing to whisk away what I must ward. I may withstand them if my tail is tough. And the stones allow me to hold fast against unrelenting force. Ask what I am called. Hmm. An anchor. Anchor. Yep. Nice. <laughs> okay. Yep. So there we go. Anyway, yeah, there there are a lot. Um, so you can. Yes. <laughs> have fun. I encourage everyone to have fun with with old English riddles. Yes. But yeah. So there we are. So that is our old English literature. Um, yeah, this is pre ten sixty six. So before most of what we think of as English. Before England was England. Yes. England was Beowulf. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's good to sort of try and remember that England was dramatic in that way, right? And, um, mm-hmm. yeah. And what yeah. that culture was like, right? Germanic England versus sort of Celtic England. What's going on? So. It's a much different is. version of England than we usually think of, really. Yes. And it's partly why, you know, and... when you read this stuff, a lot of times you aren't told any of the history because people kind of stay away from it. Not just that we don't know exactly mm-hmm. when these things were written, but because people know so little about what happened before 1060s, right? 
And the names, of course, can seem strange, except for, like, Alfred, I guess. Um, you know, Ethelred and um, Offa and, you know, even, like, Mercia and mm-hmm. Wessex, that these are names we're not really familiar with. Um, so people get sort of scared away from that, from the context of when these know. Yes. But now our listeners are prepared. Yes. Yay. So go forth. Yay. There are apparently about um, 688 translations uh, and other versions of Beowulf (laughs) at this point. Um, And that includes everything from, like, the earliest translations that were published around... Uh, 1805. Wow. To, you know, uh, Michael Crichton's Eaters of the Dead, or there's another um, another retelling called Grendel. Yes, the famous one. That's a great one. Um, Yeah, so go forth and uh, investigate, because this is super cool. Yes, and we already recommended, right, um, Headley's Translation. Yes, Headley's translation just came out. It's fairly modern. Yeah, it's quite fun, though. Because um, she uses, like, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she great. uses a very modern language. Um, and her introduction is really worth reading, too, where she talks about why she made the decisions that she did. Mm. Um, oh, she also wrote a book, I believe, that The Mere Wife. Yes, about Grendel's um, That mom. was a... Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so there is a ton of stuff. Um, Tolkien did a version. Yes. Uh, he thought the language should be archaic because he thought it sounded yes. archaic when it was written, which isn't clear if that was true. But more specifically, he wrote a very, very, very famous essay about translating Be- Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Called, I yes. think, just like on translating Beowulf, probably. But if you Google Tolkien Beowulf essay, you'll find it. Yes. Um, he might yeah, have written an essay important. called The Monster and the Critics. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which and he was obviously, about... I mean, he was an old English scholar, which is where we get, yeah. again, of course, is where we get all of Tolkien. Um, and mm-hmm. it's worth worth reading. It's also worth pointing out that this is where he sort of picked up a lot of his things, like um, he felt, he always denied having anything to do with Wagner, but he clearly was sort of writing to try and, um, what would the word be? He felt that Wagner had done a very non-Germanic adaptation of these stories, which is to say mm. that Wagner modernized it in ways that now everyone looks at the ring cycle and is like, oh, you know, it was a story about this hero and, you know, being all heroic. And Tolkien was like, no, no, much more in this sort of old English style. There's a lot of problems with these heroes and they're huge problems with heroes just to begin with, just the idea of a hero is a huge problem, that there's somehow a solitary hero, yeah. right? Um, so Tolkien was writing against that, which is why he has things like the Fellowship of the Ring, and why a hobbit, who is the least of everything, has to be the so-called hero, right? Um, mm-hmm. And he can't do it alone, of course, and et cetera, et cetera, right? So he, Tolkien tried to <laughs> eradicate a lot yeah. of those things, right? You can't depend on that strong man um and that's very uh very old english a very old english interpretation yeah all right yay so on that note yes (laughs) here at the end of all things yes uh or at the end of episode 50 yes um thanks for thank you for talking to me 
Thank you to everyone for listening. Please rate and review the podcast. Tweet us on Twitter at Ask Medievalist. See our website at askmedievalist.com. Uh, check us out on Facebook and whatever. You know, keep it medieval. Have fun. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 